So um, a few years back, uh, I had this uh, real privilege of going to Macedonia and it went on a short-term mission trip to tell the Macedonians about Jesus. And uh, my favourite place, so we went to various different sort of uh, uh, towns and villages and cities yeah, across the place. My favourite place was a, uh, a town called Gevgelia and it's on the border of Macedonia and Greece and it's quite a downbeat town, there's a very relaxed feel about it. The weather, which always helps, was gorgeous, no, hot and uh, sunny. Uh, the, welcome, the locals were welcoming, uh, you know who is this crazy sunburnt Brit come to uh, talk about a, uh, um, a Jew, what, what's he doing here? And uh, I really liked it, you could sit in like the, uh, the outside cafes and you could pick pomegranates off the trees and eat them. Um, and I know you can pick plums off the trees in Bluebush, but pomegranate sounds slightly more exotic um, and it just added to that ambiance of uh, attractiveness. And uh, I was there to tell people about Jesus, uh, but I liked this party piece at the time. And it, it was to juggle, and that was the idea, was to sort of crack a bit of a crowd which you could talk to people about Jesus. And I got to play to some crowds, uh, uh, which hadn't always occurred uh, when I tried to uh, 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 juggle and, and uh, sort of bring in uh, Jesus. And, and uh, I have this uh, little, uh, and it's a very basic routine, and if you're a, a, an accomplished juggler, you'll just roll your eyes at my insepid boringness. Uh, uh, so you'd start with the, the juggling balls, you'd, you'd start with three and progress from four and uh, uh, go to five and they'd be like, oh, that's okay, I, I gave juggling balls to my kid for Christmas and they can almost do that. And so you'd have to go up through the gears and then you go up to the clubs and the clubs sort of uh, uh, spin round and they're slightly more interesting. Uh, and so you'd go up and people go, oh, okay, oh, I can't do that. And then you would uh, uh, bring out the knives and the knives are very theatrical and big. And, and someone actually liked them so much, they nicked them from my garden shed in Newbridge uh, uh, one Sunday. And, uh, so I had to get some more. Uh, but they're big old theatrical things that look like they'd be used in sort of beheadings or Sinbad the Sailor reenactments. Uh, and so you would juggle the knives and, and that would look impressive and they would clang and, uh, uh, and stuff. Uh, but always the climax, always the moment where suddenly everyone would go, oh, this is getting a bit more interesting, is when you would pull out uh, 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 these, these rods with a bit of paraffin soaked cloth at the end and then you would sort of uh, theatrically light them with a Zippo lighter and suddenly things got a little bit more uh, real and everyone loves uh, fire juggling um, and they come in and they go, oh, it's going to get horribly burnt, am I going to see an atrocity, are we going to have to call the ambulance and I'm going to have to use my first aid training and is he going to look like an idiot uh, up the front. And then there's when you're juggling fire, there's the, this rotation of them which causes them to, to hum and blaze and, and cause a sound. And so you're like, oh, is he going to burn himself? Oh, that, that, there's this noise of whooshing uh, uh, flames. And there's also this um, uh, uh, um, aspect to them, and they light up everything. When you're, uh, uh, when you're in the dark, when we were uh, at night time in Gevgelia and you had a little crowd, and uh, there was no artificial lighting and uh, I would bring out these fire clubs and they would illuminate me and the stage um, and often the sort of the front row of uh, the audience and there was a, 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 an added element of theatre to the whole thing and there's, uh, whether, uh, uh, whether you like juggling or not, there is a, a liveliness to fire and there is a beauty to it 
and there is a danger to it. There is a, uh, uh, there is a fascination that we have with fire because it has all these elements that we find intriguing. Uh, uh, so many houses, when you look on the internet for um, sort of holiday homes, they make a big deal. We've got a log burner. You can have raw flame in your house. You don't have like boring old central heating that just does its job. You can have something a little more hypnotic. And uh, uh, so, so far is it a, a fascinating thing that, that draws most people in to, to have a look at it. And so last week, um, we found that Moses was uh, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep and he came uh, uh, to the edge of where he would normally go. He came to this uh, uh, mountain uh, that uh, was initially known as Horeb. Uh, and right there he found this bush and this bush was on fire and God very deliberately chose fire to reveal himself to Moses. Before a word had been spoken, before uh, Moses knew it was God he was communicating with directly, God was conveying something of a vitality and power and enchantment. To look on God is to be intrigued. To look on God is to, be, uh, is to benefit. To look on God is to be drawn in. And so last week we enjoyed the fact that God revealed himself in this fire and that he called Moses by name and there was this wonderful reassurance that this 80-year-old uh, uh, guy uh, who was a murderer and would finally find domestic bliss with Zipporah and his son Gershon, uh, he was known by name, that he was known, he was loved, he was appreciated, he was not outside God's plan but he was firmly in the middle. And uh, God was called, uh, uh, God called Moses into his presence. And Moses had to take his uh, sandals off and come vulnerable into a place where he wasn't to protect himself, but to allow God to be God. And we spoke about tears last week and, and how that is uh, an intrinsic part often of encountering the Almighty. So we're going to read what happens next. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3. It says this in verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. So Moses stands barefoot, vulnerable, exposed before his creator, before the God of his ancestors. There is this feeling of fear and excitement running through his veins. He is trying to process what he is hearing and seeing. There's an overload of senses that he is trying to get to grips with. But this is not just to make Moses feel good. This is not just to challenge Moses' uh, understanding and perception of God. This is not something for Moses alone. It is an announcement. It is a declaration. It is God saying, I am doing something new now. This rescue that people have uh, uh, longed for for so many years, it is coming 
now I have come down. And he's heard the misery of his people. Uh, and he's going to act. He's going to decisively intervene in history and do something incredible. You see, the story, and we are uh, hopefully familiar after even spending these few weeks in, uh, with Moses, we are familiar with Joseph becoming Prime Minister. We are familiar with him welcoming his family in. We are familiar with Jacob leading in his family into Egypt as honoured guests. And then they fall from grace. They fall uh, uh, from uh, a place of privilege. As they prospered, as they grew, the Egyptians resented them and grew to despise and hate them. Over 400 years, they went from privilege to poverty. Moses had escaped this kingdom of the Nile. But he had escaped them at possibly its lowest moment. The genocide of the Jews in Egypt was government policy. That was the rules of the land. Make sure these Jews do not prosper and flourish any longer. And it was ruthlessly applied, even to the infanticide of baby boys. And if you have lived in a land where your life is getting increasingly worse, for four centuries, questions arise, naturally, about God. What on earth are you doing? You, you said we were your people, you chose us, you were going to bless everyone through us. What on earth is going for you, hard-hearted God? Is, is this pain not enough for you? Am I supposed to endure more? Are you deaf? Are you slow to listen? Are my prayers even worth it? Are you poor of sight? Can you not see the bullying, harassment and murder my people are subject to? Why are you allowing this pain to go on for 400 years? And ultimately these are the questions of all humanity. Each of us have made and uttered these questions in our heart again and again where things go badly. You go, but I prayed. But you said, God, in your word, you were going to do something. Where is this rescue? Where is this, uh, uh, where is this solution? Where is this salvation? Where is this redemption? How long is, it, how long is this pain going to go on to until you think it's enough? How long do I have to suffer before you say, oh, okay, that's enough? How long before you draw under a line all these different things that I hate to endure? Well, in the middle of these profound existential questions, in these thoughts of gravity and profound soul-searching, we have someone to give us an answer. And his name is Charlie. His name is Charlie Parker. He comes from Kansas City uh, in the US. Uh, and he has some answers for us. You may not expect Charlie Parker to answer the, uh, uh, the soul-searching questions of your mind, but Charlie Parker has something to say. Charlie Parker was also known as Yardbird or Bird, and he was a saxophone player. And he played the saxophone well. And I just don't mean well, I mean really well. He played fast, complex tunes that would blow your mind. And he came to usher in a whole new season of jazz called bebop. 
and help to see help people see that musicians weren't just entertainers. You know, uh, 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 as someone that likes juggling, I am often reduced to a clown. That's what people <laughs> think of a juggler as. And you're like, no, but you don't understand the complex mathematical notations that lead to this uh, a juggling routine. You're a clown. You're an entertainer. Or someone that paints and creates uh, beautiful uh, pictures and they're like, you're just an interior designer. You're just a decorator. And you're like, so often great uh, artists are reduced to something less. Well, Charlie Parker took the idea uh, uh, that musicians were, were just entertainers and he elevated their position to one of an artist and a thinker. Suddenly they were to be respected and revered. Suddenly they were seen to be more than just a nice little melody to tap your foot to. My own musical hero, hero uh, Miles Davis, is incredibly indebted to Charlie Parker and I want to uh, uh, keep him there. Uh, this is uh, Charlie Parker on the left and uh, Dizzy Gillespie on the right. And uh, it says this. I really like this. I realise uh, you may not all be thrilled by the language, but I want you to listen and, 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 and just take on board this uh, trajectory I'm taking. Miles Davis says this. See, when Bird, Charlie Parker, went off like that on one of his incredible solos, all the rhythm section had to do was stay where they were and play some straight stuff. Eventually Bird would come back to where the rhythm was right on time. It was like he had planned it in his mind. He had to be ready for anything. After every set, uh, the band was surrounded by fans and musicians asking, how on earth did you do that? What was that tune? What book did you get it out of? And Charlie Parker usually laughed and walked away. Parker's music had the sound of destiny in it. It was not only the audience that was awed by what he was playing, the rest of the band were hopelessly enthralled as well. Miles Davis heard Parker playing with hard, short bursts of breath that would leave Max Roach between the beats, while the bassist and pianist were completely lost, like everyone else, only more lost. When Bird played like that, it was like hearing music for the first time. I'd never heard anybody play like that. Later, Sony Rollins and I would try to do the same thing, and me and John Coltrane, those short, hard bursts of musical phrases, but when Bird played them like that, he was outrageous. He was notorious in the way he played combinations of notes and musical phrases. The average musician would try to develop something more logical, but not Bird. Everything he played, when he was on and really playing, it was terrifying and I was there every night. It was unreal. Hopefully you can hear the breathless enthusiasm for Charlie Parker's playing. And to be honest, as I was reading that, I couldn't help but uh, put uh, a little bit of Charlie Parker on at home, going through some of his back catalogue and trying to appreciate some of his musical genius and trying to get to grips with some of his technique. You see, the band would play their instruments. They would follow the musical notation. They would go through the prescribed steps of a, uh, a musical uh, melody. But they had Bird in their ranks. He knew 
knew his saxophone. He had been playing his saxophone since 11 years old and he had an insatiable imagination that would not restrict itself to the musical notation uh, in front of them and he would go off on one and uh, he would take something conventional, something uh, programmed, something uh, expected and he would make it transcendent and otherworldly so that other people would feel that this was the first time they'd really heard music. And as we think of Charlie Parker, I want us to think of God's intervention in our own lives. We are our own timelines and own ways that life seems to progress. And God is there in the middle of it all. God is there doing his own thing that is otherworldly, that is transcendent, that seems unreal, that we can't always get to grips with, but he's doing something beautiful, something melodic, something uh, exceptional. The Apostle Paul gets us going on this same train of thought in Galatians chapter 4. He says this in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of the son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. I don't know what you think of the timelines of history and how uh, it progresses. But God said Jesus is exactly the right time. Exactly the moment that history needed Jesus coming in. If I look at the timeline of history, I might have better ideas of where Jesus should come in. Perhaps Jesus should have come in right after Adam and Eve had fallen and brought redemption right at the beginning. Perhaps he should have come when he'd chosen uh, Abraham or Isaac or someone else. Perhaps he should have come when uh, 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 the Israelites were about to go into exile. But God put in Jesus exactly the right moment. His timing was perfect. We might quiz it, we might not understand it, we might think we have better ideas, but our perfect, glorious, generous, good God brought in Jesus at exactly the right beat. And the result was adoption. The result was grace. The result was love. The result was generosity, the result was truth and life and hope. And so human history was going along and then God came in at the perfect moment to do something miraculous through Jesus. And Paul isn't the only one that says God's timing is perfect regardless of what we think. Uh, our old friend Peter, uh, uh, the... Uh, the hot and cold apostle, he says it too. Um, have a look in 2 Peter chapter 3. says this in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3. Above all, 
you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Do you know what scoffers do? Pete tells us they scoff. <laughs> and they scoff. And they follow their own evil desires because they think they're above everyone else. They think they know the rules of play. And they scoff. And they will say, where is this coming? He promised. Have you ever felt that? Where is this coming, Jesus promised? He's taken 2,021 years or whatever, but where's this second coming? And Peter says, scoffers are scoff and people will question the return of Jesus. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. People die and are born and born and die. Where is this Jesus, you idiots? Why are you believing this Aramaic-speaking Jew who lived uh, uh, so long ago? But, it says, they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of the water by water. I wonder if you've forgotten that. When you start to question Jesus' timing, when you start to forget the Spirit and the Father's involvement in your life, have you forgotten? Have you deliberately forgotten that God put it all in place in the beginning? By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing. So Peter said, above all, and now he goes, remember this one thing. Dear friends, and he brings you in, and he says, you're my precious one. People I love, I want you to hear this thing that you need to grasp. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. What is he saying? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. My kids seem to not understand slowness when they get dressed, when you're going out. You know, everything takes an age, putting on boots and clothes and coats. And they're like, it's like a different time uh, element. And God is not slow. It might look slow to us, but he is not slow. He is not slow as some understand slowness. Because are we not impatient? Do we not want it all now? Instead, God is patient with you. I realise we can't say it out loud. But if your heart does not cry hallelujah at that point, uh, I think you're in trouble. He is patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish. And I thank God that that is his attitude. I thank God that that is a driving force in God's agenda. He doesn't want anyone to perish, anyone to be subject to this flame, everyone to face destruction. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And Peter says, God is Charlie Parker. Paul says, God is Charlie Parker. He has a timing that is perfect. It is beautiful. You won't necessarily understand it. You won't notice the patterns. You won't be able to perceive the harmonies God is making. But let me tell you, it is good and perfect and right and wonderful. 
All of us see rhythms and repetitions in the songs of our lives. And we get frustrated that they're not what we want them to look like. We imagine our life being some sort of Hakuna Matata Disney tune. And we're looking forward to the relaxed, no worries attitude, but that's not what we are subject to. Every day seems to bring something new to fret and worry about. And we say, you know, oh God, what are you doing up there? I am not living Hakuna Matata in any real sense. Why much? Why so much pain? Why so much suffering? Why so much worry? Why am I not getting answers to my prayers? I have prayed them for years. I have prayed them, and I'm getting older now, I have prayed the same prayers for decades and not seen anything move. I've not seen the heavens reveal an answer. Why no divine intervention? Where is God when I need him? Is God hard-hearted? Is God slow to listen? Is he blind? And this is the thing in our world nowadays. Is he even there? Are we all imagining him? Are we all a group of fantasists who have come together to tell ourselves things that aren't really true? But Peter and Paul tell us God weaves something amazing out of these lives that we are uh, uh, so enslaved by sometimes. He is building something transcendent and otherworldly, something tremendous and unreal, as Miles Davis would say. Over this weekend, I've seen the reality of this. I have seen a mother continue to grieve for a lost child that died. Even now, she's eaten up by it. And you're like, God, do something. God, do something. Why hasn't you answered my prayer? Why haven't you answered their prayer? And on the other hand, uh, uh, a friend of mine went missing uh, uh, over, the, over the weekend. And so the police signals were sent out. And I was like, God, you know, do something. And they were found, and they were safe. And I was like, oh, do you answer prayers or not? Which measure do I use? Is it the woman still grieving, or is it the person that is found? What is going on? And I confess, I don't understand the jazz of Charlie Parker, and I don't understand the workings of God. But I can trust Charlie Parker to come in at the right time, and I can trust God because he is good and knows everything and he is wonderful and he's making beauty. Moses, Paul and Peter all explain that God moves in and out of our stories. He does it with supernatural dexterity that we will never fully comprehend. And you know it, you just got to lie and, and uh, uh, relax in the back of that. You don't understand it, you won't uh, uh, get your head wrapped fully around it, but you can be reassured that God is involved. He is making a glorious masterpiece out of all this mess, and it is fit for the world's greatest concert hall creation 
itself. So, hopefully, really hope, because it's a really good thing to be able to re be reassured of God's timing, to not lose it when God doesn't do what you want, to be able to adapt to whatever uh, uh, things God decides to send your way. As we live with that, as we embrace it, as we learn to perhaps, God forbid I say, enjoy it, let's find out the, the next bit um, in this story. And it's just one verse that I want to read out. It says this, God said to Moses, Now I've come down to rescue the Israelites from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, and various other ites that I won't bore with you. The Jews are subject to horrific oppression. I will keep banging on about that because you really need to understand they are in a pretty hairy situation. They are hated, their neighbours despise them, their work is impossible, they cannot do what they are being asked to do and their sons are being systematically slaughtered fresh out the womb. That is not a pretty situation. In the face of that tra tragedy, in the face of all that brutality and hate, this picture is being offered up. This future is being handed to them. Land that is going to be thrilling. A land flowing with milk and honey. If it's flowing with milk, it means that not that there are springs of milk that come out through the floor, that there would be lush green pastures for the cows and the goats to enjoy, and they would just multiply. If you've got one cow, you can expect two uh, before the night is done. You can expect your flocks to just increase so that there would be milk in abundance and milk for a uh, Palestinian Jew would have meant something to drink because they didn't subsist on Coca-Cola and tap water. They could take this milk and they could turn it into butter and cream and cheese and suddenly make life a little more enjoyable. Suddenly the reduced life in Egypt is converted into something much richer. Meanwhile, we have an abundance of honey. This is uh, uh, telling us that there's going to be lots of beehives. There's going to be lots of uh, uh, bee activity. And that means there's going to be rocks and trees and flowering plants and an interesting terrain that causes milk to flow too. And uh, while milk was an essential food item, honey was a luxury. It was eaten directly. I don't know if your kids have ever jammed their hand in the honey jar and just taken out and created a, a, a great mess, but it is uh, eaten directly. She used them to sweeten other foods. Um, so we make pancakes on a Saturday morning and it is great to just lavish a load of honey on a pancake and the kids will just eat it up and uh, 
Apparently it's used medicinally. I've got no idea what the medicinal qualities of honey were. Perhaps uh, I didn't need my COVID jab yesterday and I could have just slapped a bit of honey all over me and I was good for the pandemic. I don't know. Uh, but uh, we've got this place of staple diet and luxury and this land is going to flow with it. You won't know what to do with it. You're going to have so much milk and honey. And then we're told that the land would be spacious. There will be room to live and breathe. You can have farms and cities and towns. You can have uh, uh, gardens and palaces and temples. Suddenly this uh, uh, restrained life in Egypt where they were hated and despised and reduced. Suddenly they could live life to the full and breathe deeply and uh, 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 enjoy sort of bushcraft on a uh, Sunday afternoon. And uh, finally, and I think possibly most importantly, they're not going to share their land. Now we realise kids need to share their land, their stuff, but uh, Israel was not going to share their land. There was going to be no Egyptians there or any of these weird um, uh, clans with it in their name. It was going to be Jews only, Israelites only, it would be all there. As far as the land, as far as the eye could see, it would be their place. And the Israelites, they would know safety. They wouldn't know prejudice. They wouldn't know hate. They would know freedom because they were in charge of their own place. Something that they hadn't enjoyed for four centuries, they would just suck up and flourish from. And they established their own rules and culture. You know, all this stuff in Egypt, they were told what to do, when to go, how to do it. And suddenly, in this land flowing with milk and honey, they write the rules. They're the ones that uh, put down the, the civic rules for conduct. They're the ones that put down what religion looks like. They're the ones that call the shots. And there is all this freedom and uh, an invitation into something far better than they're experiencing right now. Everything that made Egypt painful would be undone in this Canaan. Everything that was horrible about Egypt would be undone. As the uh, Jesus Bible story says, uh, it would be made untrue. And it would be done by a loving, gracious, thoughtful God who wasn't slow to answer his promises. And as, hopefully, you know how to read the New Testament, everything in the Old Testament is a, uh, a shadow of things to come. It is a whisper of something that is yet to come that is fulfilled through Jesus. Let me bring my last reading uh, uh, today. And it says this in Hebrews chapter uh, 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13. And it's talking about all these heroes of faith. All these people were still living by faith and they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have an opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. 
And ultimately, this land flowing with milk and honey is not the land flowing with milk and honey. It is something else. It is this better country. It is this heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a place for them. And then in verse 37, these heroes of the faith were put to death by stoning, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute and persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet not one of them received what they had been promised. Even uh, Joshua, who went in, didn't receive what he was promised, because ultimately, this land flowing with milk and honey is not Canaan, but it's this new Canaan. It is this better country that God is bringing. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Moses' hope is ultimately our hope. It is an eternal country ruled properly, fully, completely and perfectly by God. Jesus is the new Moses. And we are start, and we should be looking forward to the new Canaan. This world we are just passing through. It is just a, a momentary blip on our eternal timeline. I want you to consider, just for a second, what has soured your life? Some of us have lived longer than the others. What things do we look back on and regret or wish hadn't happened? Perhaps an untimely death. Perhaps sickness. Perhaps loneliness. Perhaps divorce. Perhaps poverty. Perhaps a lack of opportunities. Perhaps these things have screwed our lives up and we kind of regret and think our lives could have been so much other if this thing hadn't happened. Well, we are invited, the writer of the Hebrews says, to look forward to this better country. Look forward, even with Moses and Joshua, to a heavenly country, to an eternity, because all these things are undone. All these things that have screwed us up, they become untrue. All that poverty, all that scratching around, suddenly is answered. If you are struggling for milk and honey in your life, this is what this eternity presents to each of us. An eternity flowing with milk and honey. So don't lose it when you lose it. Whatever it is, whether it is your health, whether it is your family, whether it is your possessions, whether it is your status, whatever you lose in this life, you don't need to lose it. Because we are going to a place where it's going to be better than we could possibly imagine. In fact, your imaginations are like comparing uh, one of those novelty. Uh, um, sort of uh, number one hits with some amazing classical uh, uh, masterpiece. Your imagination of what a good life looks like is like that song that my kids like 
that frog song where this uh, blooming creature sort of goes round to this inane beat and it is one dimensional and it is shallow and ultimately it is unsatisfying and God is saying I've got a Handel's Messiah for you I've got a Beethoven masterpiece I've got something from Bach that will rock your socks off and if you don't like classical perhaps something by Led Zeppelin or Charlie Parker or uh, something else Nina Simone something else something uh, with gravitas. So look forward to heaven. Don't look at this world as this is it. Because there is something better and greater. And you uh, will, the world will not be worthy of you as you have this hope in your mind. And I encourage you, cultivate, feed and nurture that hope. Read stuff, sing stuff, look forward to an eternity with creation. Because I tell you, it is the only certainty. That thing you're looking forward to physically in this world, it doesn't last. But heaven will be forever. Please bow your hands. Heavenly Father, we struggle so often to understand why you allow the things that we suffer in this life. We struggle to conceive how anything can make it good again, how anything could undo what we're facing. But Lord God, we thank you that you have a perfect timing, that you have a gracious way about you, that you transform all our weeping into dancing in the end. Lord God, I pray that you would help us have the peace and patience that comes with the reassurance that God is weaving something beautiful out of everything. And Lord God, I also pray that we would be heavenly minded, that we would have that picture of eternity in our minds, that we would live uh, our lives with open hands, that we would not grasp and uh, gain and somehow think that this life is it, but we would live generously, lovingly, hopefully with this better country beckoning us in eternity. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.